This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, connecting the needs of the Navy with solutions from industry, academia, and DOD. The new initiatives from Naval X. Then, as the war in Ukraine enters a new phase, a look at the new tranche of American higher-powered weapons and their potential in countering the Russian military. And ways to discourage other nations from buying weapons from Russia and enticing them to purchase American arms. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Naval X connects the needs and challenges of the U.S. Navy to solution providers across industry, academia, and the rest of the Defense Department. The ultimate goal? To speed capabilities to the warfighter. Captain Benjamin Van Buskirk is the director of Naval X. Captain, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, everyone in the Defense Department is talking about innovation and talking about speeding capabilities to the warfighter. How was Naval X unique? Well, what makes us unique is the fundamentals of how we were, how we were founded and designed, and that Naval X isn't here to go and do things on our own. The whole idea of Naval X is that we take the existing institutions we have, and not all branches have the unique R&D capability of the federal labs that the Navy has. So how do we take our own infrastructure and our own um, unique federal lab system and make them better and in concert with the rest of the defense acquisition ecosystem and our industry partners. Similarly, um, how do we work with industry in concert with the rest of um, not just the Navy but academia also? So tell me a little bit about your Centers for Adaptive Warfighting. What is that? So the idea of the CAW, as we call it, was really the idea of a few Marines uh, that were with Naval X, and they said, what if we took some great ideas that we're learning in industry, like Scrum, Agile, Design Thinking, we're able to abstract those concepts and adapt them to a military context. So it started off with a few captains, Marine captains, and a great idea that has now grown into something that's across the country. We've trained over a thousand folks. And the main idea is we're not teaching them skills that they're going to go put a report together and send it up to Echelon One, as we call it, like, you know, to the staff and say, figure it out. We're giving them tools to change how they make decisions and how they solve problems at their level. Uh, so it really is, goes into that mission of Naval X, of, you know, which is threefold. One is to how can we rapidly deliver, enable and guide stakeholders to delivering capability to the warfighter. Two, for being that platform for connecting the naval needs and challenges um, with our partners uh, through defense, academia, and industry. And for leading and enabling that culture change. And that's really kind of gets to that bottom line. Can you give me an example of you know, taking a need or a challenge that the yeah. Navy has been having and Naval X has been able to guide that through to a solution? Well, I think one of them that we did, which was great, was our SoCal Tech Bridge, Southern California Tech Bridge. Um, they needed, they had an idea with the installation next of building a 5G mobile lab, or 5G living lab uh, for doing training and for testing. And so really using the Tech Bridge network, they're able to go and through various phases, we call it the innovation pipeline, which is um, really based on uh, leadership from Stanford University who we've worked with and contract support on how we can have really a doctrine for pushing through in a common language that we use at Naval X 
for pulling something through from an idea to solution. So the 5G Living Lab at Miramar is an example of one of the ones that we've done. We've also, through our Tech Bridges network during the COVID, uh, our Northwest Tech Bridge uh, pulled together a various stakeholders from across the ecosystem to create masks uh, and PPE for folks that were you know, on the front lines. You hosted some workshops uh, to look mm -hmm. at how the Navy's culture is approaching challenges and sparking innovation. Tell me about that culture and what, what the result of those workshops were. Well, um, our workforce agility team really does a fantastic job in doing these workshops. And one of the things that I'd like to point out is it's not just Navy people solving Navy problems. Uh, the CNO said it really well at ITSIC, where, uh, which is a convention in Orlando, where he said, hey, this is something we want you guys as industry to be part of this solution. And I think that's one of the most powerful things that we bring to the table. It's something I learned as an industry fellow out in Silicon Valley a few years ago, is we have all of these great people. We need to leverage them. We need to leverage our partners, and we need to be seen it is a partnership, not transactional, and they want to help, right? And so um, what we did as an example was everyone that's done software knows doing software in DoD is hard. There are a lot of cultural barriers to it. We did a workshop in, uh, with the, the lead of our Don CIO and brought in folks from industry. We did our outreach. They were in the room with us. Academics were in the room with us when we were working on possible solutions for the Navy to take forward. I wonder if you have a role, though, in shifting that culture, because that's usually mm -hmm. the hardest part. It's usually not the technology, right? It's it that is. It's that culture of agility and innovation. So here's the way I look at it. We talked about a couple solutions we've had. Uh, I think the best example is, uh, is seeing what some folks in industry have done, where they've done, I think SpaceX is a great example, where it's that people had said, you can't build rockets as a commercial company. And uh, for a long time, everyone thought they were crazy until it worked. And so the way I look at this is we're trying now, and that's why we have that guiding stakeholders to delivering capabilities, our number one mission, is we can talk about innovation and culture change and, and doing things differently. But really where I think we, we gain and where we answer that question, which is a 2B, is can we do something big, right? Can we have that Falcon moment where we get folks from across the Navy and defense using our pipeline and actually deliver something big and have that moment where we go, look, we've done this, something big and it's different, now you'll listen. So I think that's how we get it. That's well, you know, SpaceX is a very large company, mm -hmm. but I want to ask you about small businesses mm -hmm. because a lot of times they're the most innovative, they have yeah. the most, the best solutions, but they can't survive long enough to wait for the DOD to yeah. get around to cutting the check to, you know, to get the solution. Well, I'm really, you know, one of the other things I'd say for everyone listening is we all talk to each other. One, if there's one of the great things that I've seen uh, across DOD is even when I first, the very first thing that happened when I got to Naval X is Mike Brown, the director of DIU, had said, hey, let's get all of the DODX people together and start talking and sharing what our problems are. And we're having those conversations now, not just among us, but with senior leaders in, uh, in defense. And, uh, you know, folks on the Hill are very interested in what we're doing. So. You know, it's just take it's a it's an effort that takes time and working together on. So it's it's easy to pursue innovation for mm -hmm. innovation's sake. Yep. How are you actually measuring success? So right now we have a handful of metrics that we use. You have I call them input metrics and outcome metrics. And it's much, it was much easier when I was in industry because you always know if you got it because you either sold it or you didn't. Uh, one of the challenges with ours is we're doing things, we call it sowing the field, right? And the actual solution to the warfighter takes, in a lot of times, many years. So how do we measure the progress? So what we're doing now is one, input metrics, like what is the outreach we're doing? How many government folks are coming to us looking for problems to solve? 
How many folks from industry are coming to us? And then we have, you know, are we moving them across this pipeline? And then we can compare that to how they'd be doing without us. So at a minimum, that's something we can do is measure the progress through those pipelines. And I talked about the 5G Libin Lab, a straight soup to nuts project that we've gone through. Where we're going next is we, I talked about the Centers for Adaptive Warfighting and the training we're doing. It's now what are they doing with that? One thing is doing the training. Now, what are they doing with that? And an example would be uh, our folks up in the Arctic did the training and actually came up with a concept for an Arctic sled that they got funding for from ONR, Office of Navy Research, and are starting to move that down the pipeline. So that's just an example. We're seeing progress, but we're looking for the big moment. And we're out of time. Captain, mm. thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. Up next, a look at the latest off offensive weapons the Pentagon is sending to Ukraine. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Russia has warned the United States that armed shipments to Ukraine could bring, quote, unpredictable consequences. This comes as the administration authorizes the delivery of more sophisticated weapons than in previous shipments. Ryan Evans is the founder of War on the Rocks and CEO of Metamorphic Media. Ryan, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Before we talk about specifics um, about the weapons themselves, how is the fight going to be different in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region than what we've seen before? Yeah, the war has definitely entered a new phase. Uh, Putin's opening military strategy was frankly disastrous, uh, trying to fight on too many fronts. All of those fronts poorly supported except arguably the south and the east. Uh, and so he's consolidating his effort towards the east in Donbass and trying to say that this is what he was trying to do all along. But this really makes it more of a war of attrition that is focused much more on a specific area of Ukraine's geography. So uh, some people will be reminded when they see imagery coming out of this next phase of the fight of things that were happening in the world wars in terms of the intensity and the way troops are positioned and the way certain weapon systems are being used. And why is taking control of the Donbass region so strategically important to the Russians? I think it's really Putin trying to salvage something out of the wreckage of this disastrous war, because this war, no matter how this next phase ends, will be a disaster for Russia. So Putin, it's important for him to say, well, we pulled the Donbass out of it. And that's actually what we were trying to do all the time, he'll say, but that's of course not true. But the Donbass is where the fighting happened in 2014, of course, after Euromaidan, when Ukraine uh, democratically ousted its dictatorial leader, who was close to Moscow, who had killed protesters. And that's when Moscow, with uh, back Russian-backed separatists, took control of parts of the Donbass. And now he wants to take the whole thing. So part of the latest military aid package includes howitzers. Describe those and how the Ukrainians would use them. These are basically large cannons, uh, to, just to simplify totally. And it's not just the United States giving them, but uh, other European countries are looking at giving them as well. And these are large artillery pieces that are going to be useful uh, for this sort of war of attrition where there's a recognizable front line and where forces are being pushed back. And it's crucial for Ukraine to have these weapon systems because Russia has a lot of them. Russia is short on people, but has a lot of kit. It has a lot of artillery and a lot of munitions, and that's what Ukraine lacks right now. So for Ukraine to protect its own forces from artillery, it needs artillery of its own. There are uh, 300 switchblade drones 11 MI-17 helicopters that President Zelensky specifically asked for in the package. What will they be able to do in Ukraine? The switchblade drones are interesting. Well, basically, these are called loitering munitions, and they're different from drones. They're actually more like missiles. Uh, they're one-time, one-use. You, 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 you use it, you lose it. 
uh, they are fired either from a tube or some other system, and they're launched into the air, they find a target, and they detonate on it. Uh, there are two different kinds of switchblades. It's unclear which ones the United States has actually sent to Ukraine. There's the 300 model and the 600 model. The 600 model is the really valuable one. It's bigger, it has some more range, but more importantly, it could take out tanks, which is what Ukraine really needs right now. As far as the helicopters, I'm not sure what their practical use in battle is going to be. I think Zelensky's been pursuing a sort of throw the spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks in terms of what he's been asking for, for understandable reasons. That's not a criticism. But it's not clear to me how useful these helicopters are going to be. Well, I mean, you know, you say asking for everything. I wonder why we didn't send these to begin with. Why didn't we start with these kinds of weapons? Um, the Ukrainians have been asking for them for a long time. I think for two reasons. Uh, one is, is that, frankly, the United States uh, expected Ukraine to fall much quicker than it did. Uh, second, uh, these weapons were not as useful for the sort of war that Ukraine was fighting up until now. So uh, whereas before Russian forces were spread out over vast stretches of Ukraine, the, the, the key was to deny Russia air superiority and to give Ukraine the ability to take out tanks. And for that, we provided lots of different systems, but uh, most prominently, of course, Javelin anti-tank missiles, which have been used to great effect by the Ukrainians, as well as a variety of different anti-air systems, most of them man-portable, which just means a person can carry them around, that have been really effective in denying Russia air superiority. So those were the right weapons for the right time in the fight. And now that the nature of the fight is changing, new weapons are required by Ukraine if it is to continue to be successful in this war and drive Russia out of the rest of Ukraine. You know, initially there was a lot of talk about uh, fear of escalation with Russia, and we can't send certain weapons because that might be seen as escalatory. Do you think that those, that those initial fears were uh, unjustified in, in hindsight? So I have no, you know, special insight into the administration's thinking on this. I just know what I've read in the press, just like you and just like many of your listeners. But my view on this is the escalation risk was less about which kinds of weapons were getting sent to Ukraine, but how they were getting there. So for example, there was a big hullabaloo over the MiG-29, which is a Soviet era aircraft that Poland had some of and wanted to give to Ukraine, but didn't want to take the risk on by themselves to give it to Ukraine. Because of course that would involve at some point, probably, uh, Ukrainian pilots flying them uh, from Polish territory into Ukraine to fight a war, which could be used as Russia saying, hey, you're using NATO territory to launch attacks on Russian troops, which makes NATO countries a belligerent in this war. That's why Poland wanted to offload that risk on the United States and wanted the United States to give them to uh, Ukraine from Germany. So in my opinion, it's less about what these weapons are, but how we get them to Ukraine and into the fight. Uh, but I don't know the nature of the administration's thinking on this. And in the 30 seconds we've got left, how does this end, Ryan? I don't know. I think that either Russia will be able to get its act together and either hold on to the Donbass or even open up a front again north of Kiev. That's my greatest fear, that they're able to open up, reopen that front up more effectively north of Kiev and drive towards the capital again. But hopefully Ukraine is able to drive Russia from every last inch of Ukrainian territory. Uh, we'll see. All right, Ryan, appreciate you being on the program. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Still ahead on Government Matters, how the U.S. can discourage friends from buying Russia's weapons. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Arms ex exports from Russia are second only to oil and gas as a source of revenue. 
To reduce that income stream, the U.S. could change strategy to wean customers off Russian arms and win back partners. That's according to Grant Rumley. He's a senior fellow with the Washington Institute. Grant, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So what's the issue with countries buying weapons from Russia? Why does the U.S. need to discourage those purchases? Well, in general, when a country chooses to purchase from Russia, they do so typically for a number of reasons, one of which is that they come with less perceived strings attached. Uh, when you buy from the U.S., we typically will train you on how to man the system, how to sustain it, how to maintain it, uh, but also how to use it effectively and, um, and within the confine, the rules of, uh, rules of engagement. So there are a lot of restrictions in terms of what we can and can't sell, uh, how partners can use uh, those, those weapons. And then we, have, we also have sort of safeguards in place where we're kind of constantly monitoring and working with them on, on deploying these weapons uh, in a humane and legal, legal fashion. And so those restrictions don't come typically when you purchase from Russia. And so uh, from our standpoint, we are constantly sort of working with partners and potential customers to, to emphasize why uh, American arms uh, and capabilities are a little bit more uh, not only effective, but uh, but in their longer term interest to buy as opposed to, to purchasing from Russia. So explain the 2017 uh, Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act. The acronym is CATSA. What does that do? Yeah, so CATSA was an effort by Congress that passed with uh, an overwhelming bipartisan majority uh, to basically discourage partners around the world from purchasing from Russia. And it, it mandated that the president sanction anyone who engaged in a significant transaction with the Russian intel or defense industry. The issue with, with, with CATSA is that it's both uh, open to interpretation and open to implementation as well. And so uh, by saying, uh, by, by mandating that the president sanction anyone who engages in a significant transaction, it doesn't really detail what crosses the threshold of a significant transaction with Russia. It also doesn't stipulate if, if there's a statute of limitations, what if a country had purchased from Russia in the past, but, uh, but, but hadn't recently after, the, after 2017, after it was enacted. And then the other issue with CATSA was, was really that uh, its implementation was a bit spotty or inconsistent. So Yeah, I wanted instance, to ask you about that because India bought Russia's S-400 air defense systems and they weren't sanctioned. That's right. The most famous instance of, of CATSA being enacted really was, was Turkey when they bought the S-400 system uh, upon taking delivery. They were kicked out of the, the F-35 program, and then they had cats of sanctions leveled against them. India not only purchased the S-400, uh, it has also leased to Russian submarines. There are other countries that haven't been hit with cats of sanctions, too. Egypt has uh, reportedly started taking delivery of the Sukhoi 35, another Russian jet. So that has left partners uh, basically scratching their heads as to uh, when and where, and even if cats of sanctions are going to be enacted. So one recommendation you make is to explore co-production of some American weapon systems. You know, that's already happening with the F-35. You mentioned that. Um, but doesn't that put proprietary information at risk? Yeah, it, it does. And that's that's been largely the main obstacle to doing it in the past. And so I, our argument in, in, it was, was basically that a lot of these partners are looking at ways to both create jobs, but also to build up uh, their own defense industrial base and their own capabilities. And so 
a big complaint they have with the U.S. is that it takes too long for arms and weapons to get from the U.S. to their country. Uh, it doesn't really support their local economy. It makes things it, it just there's a lot of red tape. It would shock you to learn that there's bureaucracy that's tough to navigate uh, in the U.S. And so uh, one way in which we could possibly incentivize them to sort of stay within the U.S. orbit, to not look at Russia or Chinese material, is to basically expand our risk calculation and look at the possibility of joint producing some select platforms with partners. And Grant, what role do private American defense companies play in discouraging companies from buying from Moscow? I mean, do they just need to make their prices more competitive? Yeah, it's it's, it's tough. I mean, a lot of these, uh, you know, a good example is something like the F-16. It's highly sought after. Uh, Lockheed Martin, the manufacturer, has one facility that, that makes the, bl the brand new uh, uh, block of F-16s. And a bunch of countries come in and place orders and get in line. Uh, and so if you are looking to buy an F-16 right now, you are going to have to wait a number of years uh, to, to actually take delivery of your F-16 because Taiwan, Bulgaria, other countries have gotten in line in front of you. And so uh, in the international fighter jet market, for instance, uh, if you want an F-16 but don't want to wait five to ten years, you would start looking at other other options in Europe, possibly Russia, uh, and so I think U.S. Uh, the U.S. defense industry may need to think uh, about ways in which it can sort of accelerate its manufacturing timeline in order to to serve our near and medium term goals. All right, Grant. Well, we'll watch and see what happens. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website at govmatters.tv slash podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.